Well, good morning. Thank you, ladies. Take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter number 2. John chapter 2. Just want to reassure you, the preacher only has a half a glass of water this morning. So, But you know, camels can go a long ways on a little water, right? Jesus, man of miracles. John chapter 2. You'll notice that our text this morning begins with the words, on the third day. That is to say, three days after what happened in chapter 1 and verse 43, where Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel to be among the first disciples. Jesus now performs his first recorded miracle. And I want you to notice that this miracle was not in a temple, but was in a private home. It was not a spectacular, showy thing, but it was quietly and behind the scenes. The occasion of this miracle was a village wedding feast to which Mary, the mother of Jesus, had been invited. I find it fascinating if you stop to consider that the earthly ministry of our Lord began at a wedding, and his ministry will end, according to Revelation chapter 19, with another wedding. Human history will culminate in the wedding feast of our Lord. Now, weddings are always special, but Eastern weddings are far different from what we experience here in the West. In Western weddings, The bride is the star of the show. The groom just shows up, stays out of the way. That's his task. When she enters, dressed in the bridal gown, the whole congregation stands as the organ plays, here comes the bride. But in Eastern weddings, it is the groom that is the featured one. Now here's something to send a shudder up your spine if you are... The parents of boys, not only were they the featured person, but they got to pay for the entire week-long festival. The setting for Jesus' first miracle is given in verses 1 and 2. Now, another difference between our weddings and the weddings that occur in the East is instead of the couple leaving on a honeymoon, the couple stayed for a week-long open house. How would you like to start your wedding that way? It says here on the third day that there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, I think it should be noted that it says that the mother of Jesus was there. It doesn't say Joseph was there. And by that absence, I think it is highly likely that Joseph has died by this point, that he has has died before Jesus begins his ministry. In fact, the last time we see Joseph mentioned in the Bible is in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus goes to the temple at the age of 12. So sometime between the age of 12 and 30, it's highly possible, probable even, that Joseph has died. This morning, I want you to notice three things about this miracle with me. First of all, I want you to see the reason for this miracle. And I will speculate, I will make the statement that you ought to understand that every miracle had a purpose. 
that Jesus didn't just blindly heal everybody that come to him. He did not perform a miracle every time uh, someone asked it of him, but he always had a purpose in each miracle that he performed. Now we begin by looking at the request of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Apparently, the amount of wine needed for the wedding had been severely underestimated. Now, as a pastor, I can understand the dilemma of trying to estimate how many people are going to show up for any particular function. It might be 30 or it might be 300. So how do you, how do you plan for that? There is the ever-present fear when you're doing so that you will run out before everyone is fed, before everyone is served. I've been at the end of the line at some of our potlucks. When all was left was lettuce and some little Doritos. You don't want that to happen. The problem is that the wine has run out and there appears to be no solution. Either there is no more wine available or there is no money to purchase the wine even if it were available. But we have to consider, you know, times are much different. It's not exactly like they could go down to the neighborhood market and pick up some more and bring it for the feast. They were in real trouble here. So Mary takes the problem to Jesus. That's always a good thing to do, don't you think? This is no mere report, however. And although we really have no idea of knowing what Mary expected, she did make this statement to Jesus. She informs him with the hope that somehow, some way, he will help them with this situation. Some suggest, are suggesting that what she's saying to Jesus is, why don't you and your disciples leave? That'll be less people that will have to be fed. Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. J. Vernon McGee suggests that Mary is asking that Jesus at last vindicate her. For 30 years, people have been talking about her illegitimate child, Jesus. And now she is suggesting to him, vindicate me by proving that you are the son of God. Possible. But up to this point, Jesus has not performed any miracles. So we have to ask ourselves, why would she come to him expecting a miracle when he had not yet performed one? Mary is very careful, though, not to tell Jesus what to do. We do that sometimes, don't we, in our prayers? I know exactly what you need to do for me, Jesus, and here it is. We just bring it to fruition. That's all I need you to do. I don't really need any help other than I need you to please let me win the publisher's clearhouse. I promise I'll give 10%. Mary is careful not to tell Jesus how he should do this. Now look at the response of Jesus in verses 4 and 5. Jesus said to her, woman, what does, this, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, in the English translation, the use of the word woman in addressing his mother seems harsh and abrupt. 
But it is not, in fact, harsh nor abrupt. If we look at it, we find that it is the same form of address that he used with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It is the same form of address that he used of the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. And it is the same form of address that he uses of Mary Magdalene in the garden tomb. None of which were abrupt or harsh or mean. In fact, it is the same form of address when Jesus is on the cross and he commends his mother into the care of John. Now, John, Jesus does go on to say, what does, your current, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, a literal translation of that Greek phrase would be, what to me and to you? Jesus is asking his mother just what has caused her to think this problem has anything to do with her or with him. It is as though Mary said to him, Jesus, they are out of wine and what are we going to do? Now, every man sitting in this auditorium who's married knows what his wife means when she says... We need to do this or that. What does it mean, men? You need to do this or that. Now, I believe that in so doing, Jesus is not only asserting that he is a grown man, he is at 30 30 years of age at this point, and that he is no longer under the authority of his mother, but that he is indeed the Messiah. Jesus' response seems to be setting new parameters in his relationship with his mother. She has raised him as her own dear son all of these years, but now a new parameter needs to be set. And it may be a gentle reminder that he, that she can no longer view him as other mothers view their children. Now, Catholics and non-Catholics strongly disagree on this particular verse and how to apply it. Catholics scholars in an effort to support Mary as an intercessor with Jesus are convinced that Mary goes to the Lord Jesus and uses her influence to get him to do something that he would not ordinarily do. The text seems to tell us just the opposite. The Lord neither abruptly nor arbitrarily turns down the request He does not say no, but neither does he say yes. He simply reminds his mother that there has been a change in their relationship. The only time that Mary is ever recorded as asking anything of Jesus, she ends up simply turning to those servants, and in verse 5 she says, whatever he says to do, do it. That's still good advice, by the way. Whatever he says to do, do it. Jesus adds the phrase, my hour has not yet come. Some take it, that means that it's not yet time in his ministry to begin doing miracles. But I believe that he is saying it is not yet time for me to act. It is not yet time for me to step into this situation because all of the wine has to be gone. It has to be absolutely without any other means before I will perform a miracle. 
Not until the wine was completely exhausted would his hour have arrived. All other help must fail before he will step in and do a miracle. Now, we've looked at the reason for the miracle. I want us to look at the reassurance of this miracle, beginning in verse 6. Now, there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. So there were six stone water pots that were used by the people who attended the feast to ceremonially wash their hands as they arrived at this feast. Each of these pots would have held 20 to 30 gallons. Multiply 20 to 30 gallons by 6, and you have some 120 to 180 gallons. Gallons. Now, Jesus doesn't wave his arms over it. He doesn't speak some magical incantation. He does no hocus-pocus. There's no mumbo-jumbo in which he commands the water to become wine. It appears that he never even touched the pots that became wine. The water simply became wine. Somewhere between the time they poured the water into those pots and the time that they drew it out and took it to the master of ceremonies, it changed. It wasn't water. It was wine. Now, I want to notice with me four things that we can learn from this miracle. First of all, this miracle assures us that Jesus is even concerned about the little things in life. It's encouraging to note that the Lord's first miracle is what many people would have considered a non-essential. It was not a life and death issue. A shortage of wine at a wedding doesn't seem like a big deal to us. Warren Warnsby, however, points out that it was necessary for the groom in those days to have adequate provision at a wedding. Number one, it would be extremely embarrassing, a social dilemma that you might never live down in your entire marriage if you ran out of wine or food at the feast. If the supplies had run out of the wedding feast, the family and the young couple would have to live with that shame forever. One other commentator points out, if, if you gave a feast of such and such a quality and quantity, when your son was married, then your neighbor had the right, he is entitled to a equivalent wedding feast given by you when your son got married. In fact, it is so important that you could be sued If you did not provide that, it was a reciprocal arrangement in which everyone is supposed to benefit. But if you let them down, they could take you to court. Now, it is unlikely that Jesus would have performed a miracle just to save someone from some minor embarrassment. But what Jesus did was he rescued this young couple from a financial liability which had the potential to cripple them financially. For years. Secondly, 
this miracle assures us that when God takes something that is ordinary, he makes it into something wonderful. John specifically points out the water pots were used for the Jewish purification rites. To eat with unwashed hands was an act of defilement. Therefore, when the guests arrived, water from these pots was poured over their hands in a ritual cleansing. Jesus took the water from these pots and turned them into wine. Not just wine, but the finest that the master of ceremonies had ever tasted. I submit to you, nothing is ever ordinary after Jesus touches it. By the same token, the Lord takes some very fallible vessels like James and John and Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, and he makes them into men who will ultimately turn the world upside down. I want you to note also that this miracle assures us that God, that with God, the best comes last. The devil gives his best first. He, he lures us into sin with the promises that he cannot, nor does he intend to keep. He doles out his trinkets up front. Whatever passing pleasures you get in this life and, and walking with him is all you'll ever get. That's as good as it'll get. The devil never shows you where he's taking you. He only shows you the next enticing step. But for those who know Christ as Savior, this is as bad as it'll ever get. This is as bad as it'll ever get. Sometimes our Heavenly Father gives us a bitter cup to begin with. Perhaps the cup of conviction of our sin. But its purpose is that we might take the cup of salvation. Sometimes he gives us the cup of loneliness that we might drink of the cup of his presence. Or we are asked to drink from the cup of failure that we might remember that we serve him and serve him alone. The day is coming when our fortunes will be reversed. I consider, the, the Apostle Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us in what is yet to come. Lastly, I want you to see that this miracle assures us that God's provision is always abundant. Now, Jesus created 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's certainly more than could conceivably be needed for this wedding. Yet I think the amount is literal. And I think that Jesus intentionally produced that wine in abundance so that the young couple not only was saved the embarrassment of having not had the wine for their feast and not only saved them from a financial failure, but he had provided an amount that they could now take and sell and put them on a good financial basis as they began their marriage together. Not only the reassurance of the miracle, but now look at the results of the miracle. And first we look at the impact upon the master of the feast. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine 
and did not know where it came from, but the servants had drawn the water new. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. He tasted the water that had been made into wine, and he, and he called the groom to him and said, Man, you've really done things in reverse here. Most people start out with the good wine, then as they drink more and more and more, they finally bring out the bad, what's not as good. And you've done, you've done just the opposite. Now, I want you to notice the impact on the disciples in verse 11. It says, The beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, I want you to note that this verse says that it was the beginning of signs, or you could say the beginning of miracles, which means this is the very first miracle that Jesus performed, which rather goes against something that we hear sometimes. Some people hold that the Lord Jesus, as a child, began to perform miracles. These are recorded in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is not in your Bible, but it is in the Catholic Bible. The Apocrypha are those books which are not included in your Bible because they're not considered to be truthful and authentic. Some samples of the unbridled imagination of those who wrote those books is the story that when Jesus and his family were threatened by a number of dragons... Now, when you got dragons, you can almost immediately say, oh, somebody's imagination is involved here. They were threatened by a number of dragons who emerged from a cave. Jesus leapt from his his mother's lap and dispersed them, saying, Fear not, for although I am but an infant, it must needs be that all wild beasts shall grow tame in my presence. Or the weird story of how Jesus made 12 sparrows out of mud. And then he clapped his hands, and they flew away. That's the kind of stories you find in the Apocrypha to say the miracles of Jesus. But this, in John's text, tells us this is the first miracle. We should also note that he uses the word sign. 77 times in the New Testament, it is used to identify an act which calls for the exercise of supernatural powers. The miracle stories confront us with a question of whether the power of God was or was not revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They compel us to say yes or no to Jesus. Now, the disciples had already believed in Jesus to the extent that they understood him. The disciples had only recently begun to attend, uh, follow Jesus, only two days now into the, the ministry of Jesus before the wedding at Cana occurred. With the miracle in Cana, what he did for them was he deepened their faith. They already believed in Jesus, but their faith grew and was strengthened. For example... When the Lord Jesus fed the 5,000, recorded in John chapter 6, we are told that the disciples doubted. They didn't believe. They didn't understand. 
Yet when Jesus fed the 4,000 that's recorded in Matthew chapter 15, we do not find them doubting. Why? Because their faith had been deepened. Their faith had grown. What I'm saying is this. When you see Jesus come through for you, when you see Jesus come through for you in your hour of crisis, it will do something for you. It will change you. It will deepen your faith. When he comes through for you now, you can look into the future and say, he'll come through for me then. And the last thing I want to address is not in your notes is the impact on us today. I have purposely led the discussion of Jesus producing wine to the last. I wish that it said, Jesus said, thou shalt not drink wine. Done deal. Doesn't say that. Sadly, many people look to this passage, this text, primarily to prove their point about the use of, or non-use of alcoholic beverages. And in so doing, they miss the point of the story. This should not be used to justify social drinking. That is not what it's about. And in fact, the word oinos is the word that is translated wine here. In the Greek can translate any use of anything made from the grape. So it could be Welch's grape juice as far as that goes. Now, let me just make a couple of points. And if you want these, you're going to have to write them down. Number one, in that day, drinking wine was a necessity. In that day, there was not much choice of beverages. It was wine or water or milk. And sometimes drinking the water just wasn't very wise. It could make you sick. It was not a viable option. But today, when we drink, it is not a necessity. It is a choice. It is a choice that as believers, we need to make very carefully. We do well to consider the influence of our example, which might cause others to stumble. I gave you just a couple of scripture references you can put down there and look up later. Romans chapter 14 and verse 21 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 31 through 33. So first of all, <clears throat> drinking wine in that day was a necessity. Secondly, the wine of that day and the wine of our day are not the same. Alcoholic drinks are made much stronger today than they were in Bible times. In fact, the wine of the, of the first century was usually diluted with one part wine to two parts water, or even three parts water sometimes. To get intoxicated, you really had to work at it. And third, the Bible does clearly condemn drunkenness as foolish and shameful. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Now, this miracle, as all the other signs in the gospel of John, teach us about the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The, the purpose was simple. That you might believe in Jesus, that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that in believing, John says, that you might have eternal life. So I'd ask you this morning, do you believe? Do you believe? When John tells us the story of the wedding in Cana, when Jesus performed his first miracle, he wanted us to believe in Jesus and in the Father who sent him. And if we already believe, he wants our faith to be strengthened. He wants us to look back and say, you know, as I've seen God perform miracles in my life in the past, it strengthens my faith and allows me to have confidence that he can take care of my future, whatever it may be. Let's bow for prayer, please. Father, we're grateful that we serve a miracle-working God. That he not only is able to perform miracles, but he is willing to help us with whatever problems we may face in life. If there's one in this place who has never placed their faith in you, they don't know for sure they have a place in heaven. And I pray that today that they might make a decision to accept what you've done on the cross for them. To drive a stake, to say, I want to know that from this day forward that I have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. There may be others who have made a decision sometime in the past, but they've never followed through with that first step of obedience, baptism. Lord, I, I pray that you'd help them to see their need to do that in obedience to your command. And, Lord, there may be the others who are looking for a church home. And I pray that you just might help them to know where you would have them to be. And if it be this place, then I pray that you'd lead them this morning. Whatever problems they face, Lord, today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please?